Hi, everybody, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly. Uh, I'm your host, George Heffler, and this is the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is my friend and yours, James Harvey. How's it going, James? It's going well. James is an absolute horror aficionado and is genuinely someone that I always uh, turn to for recommendations. You've got a a really wide variety uh, that you like. But it does seem like you tend to sort of lean towards the paranormal stuff when you're recommending things. Is that because it's your favorite or just something you think it's easy to get a decent movie out of? And so you kind of recommend those. Well, I consider myself like an omnivore of horror. I don't really have a favorite genre. I'll go for anything, you know, from just pure gore to no gore. And it's like you said, the paranormal stuff. I think that probably is my favorite genre. Uh, It's the one that actually scares me which most don't. I mean, after watching horror for as long as I have been, I'm almost 40 and I've been watching it since, you know, I was a teenager. There's not a lot that scares me anymore, but sometimes those ghost movies can still, can yeah, still, they can still surprise you every now and then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's just uh, I can get, it's, there's something about like a properly done haunted house movie where I'm able to immerse myself in it a lot easier than other movies. I don't have the same logic issues I have with some slasher movies and, I don't know. It's just uh, it just hits no, me that in the right spot. Totally makes sense. I think it's definitely a lot easier to kind of put yourself in the shoes of someone who's going through like an unexplained phenomenon like that than yeah. just like being chased by someone. So I, I think that that makes sense. There's no tangible way to fight back, which is what yeah. really screws me up about them is that, yeah, you can't. Unlike a slasher where you're like, well, just run or don't trip. Like, they're always tripping. It's <laughs> yeah. like stuff like that. It's when it's a ghost. It's like, there's no real rules. I mean, mm-hmm. just, the movies sometimes establish them. Um, but, you know, there's there's no, you can't punch a ghost. <laughs> you just can't knock one out. So, it, you know, people never really try. Like, no, can you, you're, you're not, you can't be sure. You might no. as well give it a shot. <laughs> I think it would just look super goofy. <laughs> like, either way, whether they can hit them, then it would look very goofy to knock. Just, just smack better not to take the, the risk. And if they can't hit them, then they're just whiffing through them. And that's more of a laugh yep. moment than anything else. But. <laughs> you said that you've been watching horror since you were a teenager. Was that like you jumped all in as a teen or did you kind of have a slow introduction? How did you kind of get into the genre? Well, I got into the horror genre through reading. Uh, was pretty voracious as a kid i read a lot of books and my favorite were stephen king books and i started reading those way too young i think i read it when i was about 10 years old uh and it perfect uh, perfect for putting yourself in the shoes of the losers club though oh yeah it screwed me up for life <laughs> i mean truly <laughs> truly terrified me and i had a yeah. very vivid imagination uh but i wasn't actually able to watch horror movies until i was like 17 or 18 I would try to watch them when I was younger and they would just scare the shit out of me. Like just too much. I couldn't handle it. And yeah, uh, like I, I totally get that. I, I, I liked reading the descriptions of horror movies, yep. but I couldn't actually watch them. So I, yeah. I made do with like Wikipedia articles and stuff <laughs> growing up. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm old enough that when I was growing up, there was no internet. So you just heard word of mouth of how oh, scary God. a movie was or how gory it was. And, you know, create these kind of legendary movies that you'd want to watch but just couldn't i have a very vivid memory of uh going with my mom to her friend's house and they went out for the night and left us with it was me my brother and their two teenage daughters who are a little older than us and they put on texas chainsaw massacre 2 i think i was i know (laughs) i think i was maybe 13 years old and i could not 
I could not watch it. I laid down on the sure. floor and pretended I was reading and kept the couch <laughs> between me and the TV. And even just the noises mm-hmm. uh, really disturbed the hell out of me. And I would occasionally catch glimpses of uh, what was happening on the screen. And I mean, it really just built some anxiety up in me. Sure. Yeah. I get that. I think uh, Texas Chainsaw, too. You know, a lot of people say that it's it's not nearly as good as the first one, but Say what you will about it. I think that it has one of the most messed up scenes I've ever seen in a horror movie where uh, he uh, Leatherface puts uh, Stretch's friend's face over hers to kind of disguise her down there. <laughs> yeah. It's really yeah. I remember, just disturbing. I remember that moment, and I remember the moment where I think they break into the DJ's oh, yeah. place, and they're beating that guy with a hammer. Ooh. And that I caught a glimpse of that, and it burned in my memory. And then I sort of got over it through immersion and not even too directly horror, but uh, I didn't really have a lot of friends of my own. We moved around a lot when I was younger, so it was hard for me to make friends. We'd move like every one or two years. It was, you know, I lived in like 13 different states. But um, so I would end up hanging out with my brother uh, and his friends who were, he's two years older than me and they were always right around that age. And when we lived in Texas, they were really into the Faces of Death movies and, uh, I just remember getting high and watching one of those. And then after that, I was capable of watching just about anything. <laughs> they had like, it was like an autopsy scene. We we're sitting there eating pizza and I was high out of my mind. And then it, I just trying to be, to seem tough, forced myself to watch these things. And then, yeah, you know, after that seems that, to be the way it goes for yeah. a lot of people. Just the peer pressure. <laughs> You're yeah. like, I gotta, I gotta look cool. Yeah. And I mean, those disturbed me and I don't watch stuff like that anymore, but mm-hmm. You know, after seeing that, I was like, okay, I think I can do horror. So, right. yeah. uh, and then I really got into it. You know, I really dived in with both feet, and it's yeah. the majority of what I watch is is horror movies. If we're hanging out on the weekend, me and my wife, she loves horror too. I will just run two, three horror movies back to back. We try to watch stuff we've never seen, and so I've seen a lot. Definitely seems to have paid off because you're always quick with a recommendation for me. So I definitely yeah. appreciate it. Yeah, I'm glad somebody can uh, benefit this knowledge. <laughs> um, well, so with no further ado, let's uh, get into today's movie. You picked as the best horror movie of all time, The Thing. Yep. 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter. Up to this point, John Carpenter was already a pretty big name on the indie circuit. Uh, he had directed Halloween, Escape from New York, Assault on Precinct 13, The Fog. And these are all movies from before he made The Thing. He's gone on to do even more great stuff, including additional horror movies like Christine, which is a movie that I happen to love and they live, which is a movie I know that you love. Oh yeah, absolutely. Are you a big Carpenter fan overall, or do you think that this is like a highlight for him? Well, this is definitely him working at his peak, but he has, I mean, even his lesser movies, I really enjoy like Prince of Darkness Mm -hmm. and, uh, Oh, yeah. That's another great one that I really, really enjoy that movie. There's, you know, it has some budget problems and, mm-hmm. you know, some of the special effects are chintzy looking, but I still really enjoy them. And I just love the overall tone of that movie. I have a signed poster for In the Mouth of Madness, a limited edition signed hanging oh, wow. in the kitchen. That's, <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. I love the movie. Yeah, it's it's really great. So I'm sure that you know this, but Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness are part of his so-called Apocalypse trilogy. Yep. And uh, I think that all three of those really bring something to the table 
they all really feel like a John Carpenter movie. Yeah. Um, he's one of those people whose voice is so distinct that um, it's impossible to watch a John Carpenter movie and not understand that this is his product through and through. Yeah. I mean, you can tell he definitely loves working in the genre and he's endlessly inventive. I mean, there's mm-hmm. just this movie alone, the type of scares that are in it, the, the monster effects, you know, I know mm-hmm. you can do them personally, but to, to, he oversaw it. And I mean, they're, they're just, just incredible. It's stuff you don't see in, in anything else. Right. And that type of voice uh, definitely inspires a certain kind of loyalty. He tends to work with a lot of the same people. He's mm-hmm. worked with Dean Cundy a lot. Uh, he works with Kurt Russell a whole lot in this movie. Uh, Kurt Russell is the star. He plays J.R. McCready. And uh, this is actually already his third movie with Kurt Russell after doing uh, the Elvis TV movie and Escape from New York together. Yep. According to a little piece of trivia I saw, when he and Kurt uh, came on the lot, there was a sign welcoming Dolly Parton and Burt Reynolds um, because they were there to film the best little horror house in Texas, <laughs> nice. which I was like, hey, that's the movie that this is based off of. Yeah. So just it all comes full circle. That was, That's enough right there to make this the best yeah. horror movie ever made. I read this um, originally offered to Toby Hooper. Yeah, but he, I, yeah, I, I read that as well, and he wanted to make it a little bit more of a comedy, which definitely is uh, his approach to things. Yeah. It seems to be. And I was reading his, like what his treatment kind of was, mm-hmm. and it, it just seems so bizarre. But I think that that's just because we we have the thing that we know. Yeah. Where I, I try and put myself in the shoes of like, could this have worked if we didn't already have this iconic movie? And I'm sorry, Toby, but I'm still not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, they can't all be hits. <laughs> no. And it's hard to tell from paper, you know, who knows yeah. what the finished product would have looked like. It's, but yeah, true. comparing anything to this, it'll suffer, I think. Mm-hmm. And so it opens up with an alien. So this is actually one of the only movies that is a universal movie that doesn't open up with the universal logo because uh that has the planet on it and they didn't want it to get confused where the very first thing we see in this movie is an alien crashing to earth so that crashes down you get a universal picture and uh then there's a great homage to the original uh adaptation of the 1938 novella who goes there which was the thing from another world in 1951 And they copied the logo of that original exactly. Like, they literally took a stencil of it and then, like, burned some trash bags in front of it. And that's how they did that. Yeah. Yeah, I was wondering. I really, really like the effect. It's very cool. It's it's like they put, like, smoke inside the bags and then burned them and let it release. And it's a very cool little throwback. Have you seen the original? I have not. No. I think Uh, I've, I've seen bits and pieces of it. I watched it this year for the first time, and it it wasn't, like, actively terrible, but for people to uh, have originally, like, it's it's baffling to me because, uh, spoiler alert, this movie got really panned uh, when yeah. it first came out. And for people to be comparing the two and be like, oh, yeah, the, the 50s version is better. Yeah, I read some of those reviews. They were very confusing to me because I remember yeah. Stephen King talks about the original in his nonfiction book, Dance Macabre. Mm-hmm. And he describes the monster as like a giant carrot, <laughs> which just does not sound terrifying to me. No, it's not. But you know what? It brought us here. And so 
uh, we have to be thankful. <laughs> so you get this this cool homage to the original, and it's a really nice effect and a fun title screen. And then it cuts to a beautiful landscape of Antarctica. This initial part, the exteriors were filmed in Alaska, uh, which John Carpenter famously reported that the only problem with this location was that they couldn't get any beer. <laughs> <laughs> and later they filmed parts of it in British Columbia, where it was 30 degrees below after the wind chill. So not ideal shooting situation, but the stark landscape is absolutely gorgeous. And the fact that they actually went out there and shot in the nature of it, I think is noticeable. Parts of it are on the soundstage when they're inside the building, but to capture this sort of Antarctic wilderness, I think that there was no other way for them, but to actually go out there and capture something as close to it as possible which I think is kind of an ethos that permeates this entire movie. A lot of that, you have to just do it. You can't fake it kind of thing. Yeah, I agree. The exterior shots in this film really help set the tone of how harsh and unforgiving the environment is. Yeah. And, uh, you know, how dangerous the, the entire thing is, even without a shape-shifting alien murdering <laughs> your friends. Yeah, yeah. The wind is howling and the snow is whipping around. It's, it's really intense. And we kind of get some intercut scenes here between... A helicopter chasing a dog and Kurt Russell as J.R. McCready. He's playing chess and he's drinking a whiskey and he's just so cool yeah. <laughs> right away. He's got like the light of the of the computer screen kind of reflected onto his face. And uh, it, like he just has this uh, effortless charisma that I can't describe. I Like Kurt Russell has just got something. Yeah, it really establishes the character well this entire scene. So you're cutting back and forth between the two, the chasing, and they're like sh- they're popping off shots at the dog. They're trying to kill it, not just follow it. And Kurt Russell playing chess on the computer. He thinks that he has it beat, and then the computer puts him in checkmate. And he stands up, pours the whiskey inside the computer, and says, "You cheating bitch." <laughs> <laughs> I love it's, that moment. It's a great scene because not only is it very funny. But it also really kind of sets up his sort of win at any cost situation. He would like he destroyed that computer. Yeah, I had the exact same thought that it doesn't it does a great job of sort of mirroring not to spoil at the end where he's willing to go nuclear to Mm -hmm. to win or get a draw. Yeah, exactly. It's not (laughs) he didn't lose. You didn't win. (laughs) (laughs) I read that the uh, computer is voiced by Adrian Barbo. Yeah at the time was the wife of Carpenter. Is that right? I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, the only female presence in this entire movie (laughs) is the voice. Yeah. So we, we cut back to the Russians and the dog has finally, not the Russians, the Norwegians. (laughs) Yeah. I called them sweets the whole time I was watching it last night. Yeah. Calling them that. Kurt Russell does too. And it's like, Oh, no wonder (laughs) everyone gets it wrong because you're actively saying the wrong thing. So the Norwegian dog gets to the American camp and he kind of uses them as cover. Yeah. They don't know this at the time because they don't know that it's not a dog, but he's clearly kind of putting the Americans between him and them. Yeah. This is pretty well known at this point, but the Norwegians actually are yelling close enough to something translatable as uh, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. Norwegian people are like, hey, this could have been over in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, if one person there spoke it. But these, alas, they are not. No, these and, Norwegians uh, are hilariously ineffective. Yeah. You the, could 
play the Benny Hill theme music as soon as the <laughs> helicopter lands and it would fit perfectly over the scene. I mean, the guy yeah. is missing up close with a high powered rifle. He manages <laughs> to shoot one of the people because he doesn't check his sight line at all, yeah. uh, which you can kind of get. He's focused on killing the creature. But then the guy that goes to throw the grenade. Unbelievable. <laughs> he, like. he throws it behind himself, <laughs> which, OK, he's wearing gloves. But then he tries to dig it up out of the snow instead of getting away from it. Yeah. And I mean, it's just. (laughs) And they had all kinds of like gas canisters and stuff in the helicopter because they were trying to use fire to kill it, obviously. But like, boy, he should have been like, wow, this is a huge mistake. I mean, at least stop down and and try to talk to the people. I mean, you have the creature right in your sights. You know, you don't it doesn't have to be immediately murdered. I mean, it's just they handled this as poorly as anyone could handle it. Seriously, what's the, I mean, what's the worst that happens? Is it stops being a dog and then they also <laughs> yeah, understand? Everybody knows. <laughs> yeah. So definitely a mistake on their part. And uh, that guy, the passenger, like we said, does not <laughs> run away from the grenade. Instead, tries to dig it up. He blows himself and the helicopter up. Yeah. And then, um, like you like you also mentioned, the pilot is shooting at the dog and shoots one of the Americans. And so they shoot back and kill him. Yep, the uh, um, captain smashes out a window inside the base and with yeah. a handgun from pretty far away gets a eye shot. Much more impressive shot than those Norwegians. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's a great effect, too, with the uh, squib when he hits him in the eye because he's wearing a pair of like mountaineer goggles mm-hmm. and it just the blood blows out the glass. And it's yeah, it's a very nice cool shot. One of the like more minor effects, but it shows that they really didn't let any detail get past them. They were really focused on making sure that everything was as realistic as possible. Yeah. Now we get a little bit of time to get to know the men at what we discover is U.S. Outpost 31. John Carpenter said that he allowed everybody kind of a lot of uh, room to improv and clarify the character as they saw fit. And so there are I'm going to run down a list of all the men. We okay, kind of get terrible with names, so I'll never be able to refer to any of them by name. I don't <laughs> I know Clark is the guy who likes the dogs. And yes. Greedy, of course. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be tough. Uh, if you hear us stumbling, please don't get mad at us. This is a lot of dudes. <laughs> it's a lot of names. So you have Gary, who's the station manager. He's the guy who's in charge, and he's the one who shot the Norwegian guy. You have McCready. That's Kurt Russell. He's our main character. He's a helicopter pilot. You have Blair, who's a biologist. You have Fuchs, who's the assistant biologist. Bennings, a meteorologist. Norris, a geologist, Copper, who's a physician, Clark, the dog handler, Childs, the chief mechanic, Palmer, the assistant mechanic and helicopter pilot in training, Windows, the radio operator, and Nulls, the cook. Now, I know that that was a ton of names I just threw at everyone. I don't really expect you to remember them all. That was more for my edification, just to make sure that I named them all at least once. Yeah, Blair's uh, easy to remember because it's Wilford Brimley. Yeah, oh, he's great in it, too. Yeah, he is. Um, but they kind of throw you in at the same way that I just threw you in, <laughs> where they're yeah. like, here's everybody. you got to get to know them, whether you like it or not. And, you know, they're all kind of standing around a table yelling at each other, being like, what the hell is going on here? And you kind of have to just, like, pick out little bits here and there um, and get to know them as you go through. Windows is wearing glasses, or I would never be able to tell him apart from Palmer. Oh, yeah. And everyone needs that. They they all have, like, one one little thing. thing. Like, Doc has a nose ring. (laughs) (laughs) I can latch on to this. Yeah. And so everyone is talking about what they think was going on. 
when uh, McCready takes Dr. Copper with him to go investigate the Norwegian camp. They were freaked out about something. We got to go let them know what happened over at the camp, see what was going on, if we can figure anything out. They find it totally demolished. Now, one thing that I think is really cool is, again, very Carpenter low-budget kind of approach. This demolished Norwegian set is actually the same American set after they destroy it at the end of the movie. And they were just like, all right, well, we'll just film this out of order and just reuse this now destroyed building to take the place of this Norwegian one. So oh, that's really great. Yeah. yeah and yeah. and it looks it looks great because they really did demolish it. Yeah. <laughs> it was you <laughs> see it at the end, and... it gets blown <laughs> the hell up. Yeah. And so yeah, it's extremely creepy as they explore it. This thing is really it feels like a ghost town because of the wind howling and everything. Mm-hmm. And it gets more and more intense. They find someone who had slashed their wrists and uh, the blood froze as he drained. That's a and great so effect. It's so good and it's it so, so creepy. Creepy, yeah. yeah. It, like, it reaches all the way down to the floor, just red ice, and you're so like, oh god, <laughs> nothing, nothing inhuman has happened yet, and you're already on edge. Did he slice his neck too? I. It looked like he tried to avoid getting assimilated, and so he slashed his wrists, and yeah. then like the monster like snapped his neck in half or oh, something. Yeah. Yeah. It looked it looked more uh, aggressive than just yeah, the it's, it, was, it was gruesome, that's for sure. So they find this guy, they find a huge block of ice that serves as an homage to the original movie again. That's the same thing that they find the alien in in the original movie. And they finally find sort of a mass grave with a bunch of charred corpses and a humanoid-looking thing that's it's like mid-mitosis. <laughs> it's like yeah, it's, halfway through splitting itself. Yeah, it was partway through transformation when it got burned. Yeah, it's really gross. It's an awesome prop. It's like I, I unabashedly love it, but the, like it's shocking to see that first time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, when I went into this movie, like I said, it was – the internet existed by the time I had seen this, but it wasn't anything that I was on. I, I really had no idea what the monster would look like in this movie. And these are just hints that, you know, I mean, they're they're showing basically partially what it looks like. But it's mm-hmm. at, at this point, I'm all in on the movie. And yeah, this really hyped me up for what is this thing going to be? Yeah. And, and like you said, it's just kind of a hint because it still yeah. has the humanoid aspect of it where it had clearly assimilated someone already and was <clears throat> mid split. So you're like, oh, whatever this is, like it looks it can look human. I couldn't tell how much of it was from it transforming and how much was damage from the fire, like melting flesh. And it's just, it's really well done. I also really love that they super ground it in reality here because it's played completely straight. Both men are just like silent and shocked. There's no witty one-liners or ironic asides. They just are taking it in. Yeah, as you would if you were, if you were actually seeing something like this. Right. So so even though they've now escalated it where they're like, okay, we need you to believe this. They've also kind of reinforced the gravity of it and and made it feel more real just by having them react in a realistic way, which is something that I always prefer it. But it feels like it happens so infrequently where everyone has to have like a quippy one liner or something. So I really appreciate it here. Yeah, they're not going for cheap character moments They're Mm -hmm. They're letting it have weight in uh, in play out the way yeah. it you know might actually play out, and it, it does it does it helps ground uh, ground the whole thing. 
they bring this thing back to their camp because they got to have people take a look at this thing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you can't explain it, so you just got to yeah. show it. And so uh, Blair, just he, uh, as the resident biologist, performs an autopsy on it, and he finds just human organs inside. So as far as they're concerned, this thing is just like a fucked up human. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's so weird. That I can't explain why, but that part just unnerves me so much. Yeah. <laughs> Clark, who is sort of the dog keeper, uh, kennels the dog that the Norwegians were chasing. So this is, I think when they're investigating the base, it cuts back and forth to showing the dog walking around their base, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah this is. I just wanted to mention that it's great dog acting on this dog. It really yeah. feels, <laughs> the dog unsettles you for some reason. Just the way it behaves, the way it acts when it's looking out the window. Mm-hmm. You can tell that there's something wrong with it. I mean, you obviously would have suspected that, but. There's just something about the way this dog acts that you you feel like, uh-oh, this thing's yeah. trouble. It's a really good dog actor. And yeah. uh, I so I actually listened to the John Carpenter commentary uh, to watch this movie again. And he also was like, hey, that's a really good dog actor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wanted to make like, sure we shouted it out and gave it some props. Cause, yeah, he was like, <laughs> it only took like four takes. And he really admired the way that uh, whenever they would do the dolly shots – that it wouldn't look at the camera or the camera operator. It would keep its eyes on whatever it needed to be eyes on. So yeah, that's part of what unsettles me is the just its eye line and the way yeah. it's, got, it's got this like stillness to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really impressive. Yeah. Um, so good job to that dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Clark puts it in the kennel with the rest of the station's dogs. And this scene haunts my damn nightmares. <laughs> oh, I know. This it's is like, what gets you. It's truly... When people ask me what is, I think, one of the scariest horror movies, not necessarily the one that I think is the best, but just the ones that, like, really unsettle me and scare me, this is always at the top of my list because so much of this stuff just gets under your skin in a way that you can't even explain. And this dog monstrosity is one of them. It's incredible. I, yeah. I, like like I said, I when I first watched this, I went into it blind, so I had no idea what the the creature was going to look like. And this is just one of its very, they theorize later on that it's been all over the universe. So mm-hmm. it is imitating things that it's seen, uh, you know, on different planets. And so it's never the same really when it transforms. And the moment when the dog's head splits open like a flower and the <laughs> tentacles start coming out of it, it is God. so shocking when you go into this movie blind. I yeah. mean, it really knocked me out of my seat. And then, you know, I'll let you continue. The rest of the scene is just amazing. Yeah, it, it continues to escalate. Like you said, it like peels back like a flower and the tongue is hanging out and yep. tentacles start whipping around from the back. And then the the dogs are freaking out, obviously. Trying to bite Makes total sense. Yeah. yeah, they're trying to bite through the cage. Heartbreaking that one dog trying to get away by <laughs> chewing so steel close. with his teeth. Yeah. yeah. And so this attracts the attention of the rest of the crew who rush in. And at this point, one of the dogs that was like getting absorbed, is just like a fleshy melted dog just wailing. And then in the corner, the, the thing is like an eyeball plant that erupts and God, it's just like a monstrosity in every, (laughs) it's truly horrifying. (laughs) it, (laughs) It feels as close to us experiencing 
what H.P. Lovecraft is talking about yeah, with, like, exactly. the other gods, where yeah, you're like, I can't, I don't know what I'm looking at. I can't even process it. Yeah, the, all those passages where they can't really, you know, the people are like, I can't describe what I saw. This is the kind of thing you think they would see. You know, <laughs> something from out of space and out of time that's, you know, its entire structure is alien and uh, just disturbing on a primal level. Yeah, so... This is this seems like as good a spot as any to talk about the special effects people on this oh, yeah. movie because this movie. they're really they put the team on their damn back. <laughs> like, <laughs> this um, movie more than I think any other makes me hate CGI. Yeah. <laughs> it just yeah. Sometimes you're like, uh, like it has its place, it has its place, and then you watch something like this and you're like, no, ban it from Hollywood. <laughs> and I don't think there's any other movie that has a direct comparison to a remake. That is so much worse for the fact that they did not use practical effects. The 2011, uh, I guess it's a prequel, not a remake. Right. Um, but it hits the same beats. Yeah. When you put these movies next to each other, it is shocking. It's, yeah. It's shocking how bad, how, how less invested you are because the effects are not practical in the 2011 version. I cannot yeah. tell you a single thing about that movie. The worst part is, is that they were like partially through filming it with practical effects in it. And then they were like, no, change yeah. this. Really heartbreaking to think what it could have been because it's a pretty good idea where – so it is a prequel, but it's from like the Norwegians' perspective. So we see what happens over there that led to them chasing the dog, and it leads right into the original. So interesting concept, unfortunately uh, executed to less than perfection. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I read that the team that did the practical effects then ended up taking them and using them in their own self-funded movie called... Uh, oh, well, that's good. It's called Harbinger Down. It has uh, Lance Henriksen in it. Um, oh, yeah. I tried to watch it, and the acting was so bad, I just sort of skipped uh. forward, and I looked at the uh, the monster scenes, and they're okay. But Those I guys mean, can't catch a break. Yeah, I mean, it's just compared to this. These are... Stan Winston did some work on it, too, I think. Right. Stan Winston did this particular effect. He did the dog stuff because mm -hmm. Rob Botton was like, after the howling, I never want to see another <laughs> fake dog. <laughs> like, someone else has got to do this. Yeah. So, I mean, this is masterwork. Right? Yeah, it really is. And so the two people who are – they do amazing in this movie are Rob Botton and Stan Winston. Stan mm -hmm. Winston is known for Jurassic Park, Predator – Aliens, Rob Botten has done The Howling, RoboCop, Total Recall, Seven, Mission Impossible. Like, those are all amazing special effects movies, and yeah. I would put this up against any single one of them and yeah, be like, this, I, I think, is the best work. So it's real star power in the makeup department, and it shows that when everyone on the crew is working at the top of their ability, it really – the product becomes even more than the sum of the parts. Mm-hmm. So Blair – well, so let me actually say that they torch this this dog monster. We yeah, never they, actually finished the scene. No. Thank God uh, they shoot the dogs that are suffering and then yeah, and then yeah. torch the, the monster. And the whole time Clark's flipping out because he loves the dogs. I mean it's very yeah. clear that he's a dog person. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, he's very um, upset with them. He tries to stop McCready from shooting them. And yeah. They end up – But it had to happen. They end up they, getting the flamethrower. McCready calls for the flamethrower. I like the scene where one of them runs out and says, McCready wants the flamethrower. <laughs> the other guy's face is just like, 
he wants the flamethrower <laughs> and then runs back in with it. It's great. I like yeah. these little, they have these little beats that have humor in them where it's not, they're not jokes exactly, but there's some very dark humor in this. Yeah. I, and a lot of it is just in the line delivery. I find. Yeah. It's just, it's just little character moments, but yeah. And so Childs runs in with the flamethrower uh, and he does manage to kill this thing. And so Blair does another autopsy on it and finds that it can perfectly replicate and imitate other creatures. And so this is, in my opinion, where the movie really starts because, A, you now have the rules set up for this monster where you understand that it can be anyone. Yeah, and this is where the paranoia sets in. Exactly, yes. Yep. Because So Blair is talking to Clark about how long he was alone with the dog, mm-hmm. and you really start to see the suspicion set in. Like it, It's like it turned on a dime, and, and you see the paranoia, and the isolation in this movie is so much more intense because – you can't even feel like you can be in with other people. Yeah. And the waving is almost scarier than half the actual monster attacks, which we've already described as being terrifying. Yeah. I mean, you just, they can't trust anyone there. People are accusing each other left and right. People are angry at being accused. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. And then, and then the thing starts playing tricks on them, basically <laughs> right. you know, making them suspect people who aren't part of it. And I, I don't know. It's just great. They're taking a look at some of the recovered Norwegian data that they got, (laughs) and uh, it leads them to an excavation site where they find uh, the spaceship from the very first scene. Uh, Yeah, this is the – they fly back out to it in the helicopter with MacReady as the pilot. Yep. Uh, wearing a lovely Wild Bill-esque hat. He has it's a giant hat. I love the hat. It makes me so happy. <laughs> yeah, and this is, when they find the ship, they show the crater that it's in. And this is, I believe there's a, a matte painting where it's a composite of actual landscape and then the background being painted, which is mm-hmm. something they don't seem to do a lot anymore. I think it's used to great effect here. It's used a lot in more, uh, like, typically set in space sci-fi movies. Yeah, Star Wars has a lot of it. Yeah, and so it's interesting to see it used here to create more isolation as as opposed to creating, like, uh, foreign landscapes. Yeah, and it sets a sense of scale that they wouldn't be able to get otherwise. And when it's done well, it it looks really good. I mean, you could tell something's a little off about it, but something I enjoy. Yeah, I I think that if you're not looking at it with a critical eye, like, it's easy to let it go. Oh, it it passes, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So... They see this this crater that it's in, and Norris estimates that based on the ice around it, that the ship has been buried for at least 100,000 years. In my notes, also, MacReady is wearing a cool hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I have in my notes, Wild Bill hat. Yeah, it's great. It's <laughs> he really looks great. like the G.I. Joe character, I think, Wild Bill. It, it's shocking how how by not talking about it he makes it okay <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> that's a hard hat to pull off <laughs> yeah <laughs> while they're out there back at the base blair has been studying this thing and it's really first of all let me just say that it's really nice for me to be able to refer to it as this thing <laughs> and have it be the actual term <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And so he's getting paranoid that it could assimilate all life on Earth in a matter of years if he manages yeah, to escape. Yeah, I love this computer work. They had computers do a lot back in the 80s that it's like yep. the, computer, <laughs> the computer calculates a 75% probability of crew members being affected. It's like, how does the <laughs> computer know that? And, yeah. 
and just the uh, um, it shows the cell taking over the other one and just it's i like these silly little computer things in 80s movies it's fun it's back when they hadn't quite nailed down what computers could do (laughs) (laughs) they were like uh sure this is the future they could do it (laughs) yeah exactly and so blair is getting more and more paranoid and in order to reduce the risk of assimilation that blair is warning about Bennings and Windows are moving the thing corpse, the like mitosis thing, mm-hmm. into the storeroom. Windows goes to get the key to the storerooms, and Bennings is kind of by himself in there. And you find out that even though it had already been burned, it wasn't actually dead. And some tentacles kind of slip under the sheet and start to assimilate Bennings. So Windows interrupts in the middle of this and finds Bennings like bloody, half naked, wrapped in tentacles, like. <laughs> I feel like Bennings gets it almost like the worst out of anybody. <laughs> yeah, he didn't get it fast too. And yeah, I read some. I read a little bit says there were alternate takes of Bennings dying. Uh, he originally was gonna get pulled beneath a sheet of ice and then resurface in different areas of the base in various stages of assimilation through the movie. Oh man! But that was cost prohibitive. They didn't do that. Sure, that um, makes sense. Yeah, they it, the scene called for a huge stage hydraulics dogs flamethrowers and they just didn't have the money for it then they also had a scene filmed with bennings being murdered by an unknown assailant but they felt the assimilation leading to his death wasn't explained enough and short on time with no interior sets remaining a small set was built maloney was covered in ky jelly orange dye and rubber tentacles (laughs) (laughs) so that's how they achieved the effect of him sitting in that chair getting like a hell of a party (laughs) yeah it looks great you know it's funny that you mentioned all those like just kind of household objects that they use to create this effect Mm. because it's disgusting it's (laughs) really gross (laughs) he looks like he's being digested and windows interrupts this freaks out obviously Mm. runs to go get mccready and fuchs and they come back they find out that bennings in quotes has broken through the supply window and he's running out in the snow but This is something that I find really interesting that I definitely didn't pick up the first time, that the limping that fake Bennings is doing is because the thing can only do a perfect assimilation. So it takes in their flaws as well. And so Bennings was already hurt. And so this like this was something that it took in. And so that's part of why um, it's it's limping. So this I never put that together either. And so that it kind of comes back into play later with Norris, where the like weak heart thing kind of pays off. So just like a nice little uh, addition to that. And so all the men catch up to him. And (laughs) this this is another scene that just sticks out to me where like when you think about this movie, there are just a couple of scenes in it that really jump out and just are stuck in your consciousness. And this is one of them. The because one where his arm is partially transformed and oh, the noises yeah. that he makes. Got uh, it. We haven't talked about the the sound effects for the creature, mm-hmm. but I don't. I really don't know what they're how they do it, but it, it sounds alien and and yeah. very scary. For sure. And and it screeches at them like it's freaking body snatchers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what uh, my wife said that last night. She's like, that feels very body snatchers. Yeah, like, hey, you're right. It does. Yeah, definitely. And, and like you said, his hand is like only partially formed. So it's like disgustingly long. <laughs> yeah. It's like it just took human proportions and like stretched them yeah. to a point where it feels off. And that kind of body horror is part of what makes it so effective because it's just other. It's just off of human. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, there's um, something about that that triggers something inside you. Right? Mm-hmm. It's very squicky, I believe they call it. Yeah. <laughs> and so McCready, he tortures it with some gas and a flare. It's all very intense. And meanwhile, Blair has let his paranoia get the best of him while they're out there doing that. He sabotaged the vehicles, killed the remaining dogs who weren't even affected by the thing. And he has one with an axe. Yeah. It's brutal. It's not nice. Yeah. And he destroys the radio claiming that thing wanted to be us. <laughs> so at this point, do we think that Blair is infected? Uh, you know, I don't think so. I really he's don't. Destroying the equipment so they can't leave and they can't yeah. call for help. I mean, you would, yeah, it's just hard to tell because it benefits the thing in a way and also doesn't. Yeah. But it's just, yeah, I don't know the exact timeline. I'm sure there's one out there that shows when, you know, every yeah. person was down, down to the millisecond. I'm sure yeah. someone with more time than I. Yeah. This so. has a scene where child says, you're not going to hurt me. And Blair pulls out a gun and empties it. <laughs> and then very funny throws the empty gun at the door. Right? <laughs> <laughs> he looks at it and just hucks it right out the door. <laughs> he, he means business. And, yeah. and he's going to use every weapon at his disposal, including ep- empty guns. It's funny, but you're also like, I, totally understand why he's freaking out right now (laughs) oh yeah definitely and so the team decide to quarantine him in the tool shed and they decide that in order to figure out who is possibly contaminated already they'll test their blood against the uncontaminated blood that's held in like the medical storage Mm -hmm. Um, but they get in and they find that this blood has been destroyed wow what a fun coincidence yeah Um, yeah they begin fighting over who had the key and yeah who had access to it and and it's funny because I was reading a theory that was like, it doesn't matter that only one person had the key and that there was like one handoff because since the thing can shape shift and it's just like a normal refrigerator, it could like go underneath the rubber. <laughs> yeah, it could get into pretty much anywhere it wanted to. Right. So it, it feels very much like it could just be anyone like it's just sowing discord at yeah. this point. Mm hmm. So, like we said, there was some a row about the key, and Gary was the station manager, was the guy who had the key. So everyone loses faith in him, and McCready kind of takes command here. Mm. It's interesting to note that McCready definitely is not kind of your typical idea of protagonist. It feels a little like his Snake Plissken character, where he's very much like a loner who kind of has rust upon him. Yeah, yeah he's, he's uh, it's clear that he de- doesn't really want to lead or know how to do it, but is just it's sort of thrust upon him. Yeah, just the quiet confidence that he has is noticed by everyone else. And they kind of he's he's put upon to become this leader. Yeah, the, some of his backstory, I heard uh, Kurt Russell was talking to John Carpenter about it. They said that he was a pilot in Vietnam who was an alcoholic and felt displaced after the war. So he was kind of looking for himself in Antarctica and that's kind of how we wound up there, which I think uh, all kind of makes sense for the way that he plays him. Yeah. They were initially going to put some of this backstory into the film, but just felt that the dialogue slowed it down too much. Right. And this movie Um, really does go. I mean, it starts. Oh, absolutely. Once it, once it starts going, there's, it's just put on the gas. While they're arguing about the blood and who's going to be in charge, there's a power outage and Fuchs goes missing. And 
McCready is like, all right, we got to find him because any if any one of us gets infected and then comes back, like that that could be it for all of us. So we need to make sure that we are aware of where he is. So McCready takes Windows and Nulls to search for him. And they stop off to talk to Blair to see if he's seen him. And this scene is very unsettling. I don't know how you feel about it. Oh, uh, when they open the hatch and the nooses just in front of Blair? Yes. <laughs> yeah, very dark. It's like he he seems even like somehow he seems more off because he's normal now like he, he he's, <laughs> he's saying requesting uh, to come inside yeah he says there's now, nothing wrong says. with me there's nothing wrong with me and even if there was i'm all better now <laughs> yeah. and, and, she turned me into a newt <laughs> i got better <laughs> exactly. it's got that same kind of feel to this it. is it, it's the same it's the thing version of that yeah and there's the noose hanging in the foreground the entire time <laughs> and I like I can't help but laugh at it, but only because I'm so uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, it is funny. It's just very dark. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they're talking to Blair and he basically they're like, all right, Blair's gone fully tits up off the deep end. <laughs> like we're going to leave him here. And they find the corpse of Fuchs burned up and they, they think that it was a suicide to avoid assimilation. And so they find they send Windows back to tell everyone, and McCready and Nulls go to investigate McCready's shack, where Nulls uh, he finds a scrap of a scrap of shredded clothing with McCready's name on it. I like that. Uh, you know, he says uh, we're gonna go check out my place, and he says why, and he says because when I left yesterday, I turned the light off, and it just pans over, and the lights on in his shack. I just oh like yeah, little moment. <laughs> It's great. Um, that's and that feels very Dean Cundy, uh, who is the cinematographer for it, and kind of like letting the panning be like storytelling. Yeah, is exactly. Classic for him, um, and he's really great in this movie in particular. And so they find, well, not they. Nulls finds this scrap of clothing with the name, and so he thinks that McCready has been assimilated, and so Nulls cuts him loose in a snowstorm. Yeah, that's cuts the, cuts the line. Crazy dangerous. And oh yeah. So. I mean, he thinks that he's in danger, but like that, it's a it's a huge step from just finding the the scrap of clothing to being like, I'm gonna kill this guy. So yeah, really kind of shows you where their heads are at. Yeah, that he would just jump to that because it's basically a death sentence to cut yeah. somebody's line in a whiteout like that. They people get lost and die in those all the time. That's why they have ropes that string between every single unit of the base that's real in Arctic and Antarctic research stations. They'll have right. these lines that run from one to another so that you can hold on to them. And because sometimes your vision is down to nothing. I mean, they don't call it a whiteout just to be cutesy. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a blackout, but the yeah. opposite. I feel like so, I'm saying exactly a lot. Well, you know what? I agree with you. You're being guess. exact. <laughs> right. Um, and so shockingly, perhaps conveniently, McCready does still find his way back. And the group is debating letting him in or not, because Dolls is telling them about that he found the scrap. And, oh, and McCready must be he must be part of the thing. And McCready is not he's not waiting for them to let him in. So he takes it into his own hands and he breaks in. I mean, just looking at him, I don't think he had the time to, to wait. Yeah. He basically looks like a human popsicle when he gets in. He He's not looking ideal. He's shivering as he's holding this dynamite and he's threatening to light it with the flare. And you're like, 
damn, the way that he's shivering, he might accidentally light it anyway. (laughs) It's so dangerous. He's holding a flare in one hand, a massive bundle of dynamite in the other, shaking badly and not even looking at it, just staring at them. (laughs) He will eradicate everyone on the base if he has to. Yeah, but you know what? You believe him. You You definitely will. (laughs) He's threatening them, and Norris has a heart attack. And this leads to... I, look, I'm going to say that not only is this one of the most iconic scenes in this movie, it's not only one of the most iconic scenes in horror history, I'm going to go so far as to say that this is one of the most iconic scenes in movie history. Yeah, I cannot argue with that. This is this is a jump scare that I would place above any other jump scare I think I've ever seen in a movie. Absolutely. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's shocking, but it feels earned. It's mm-hmm. like everything is just working to, to keep you invested in this scene and direct your attention where it needs to go. If people are thinking about this movie, I think that this is the scene that they think about. There is a lot of other really iconic imagery that we've already mentioned and even still to come. But this is, I think, the scene that people think about. I own several The Thing t-shirts, and I think that out of the three, two of them are from this scene. <laughs> so. There you go. Copper, who is the doctor, he's their physician is attempting to defibrillate Norris, who's had this heart attack. And as he's going in to shock him, the chest just transforms <laughs> into a huge mouth that bites off Copper's arms. And they, like, they used an actual double amputee in this yep. scene. And they just filled had, like, the prosthetic arms with wax bones, rubber veins, and jello. <laughs> Oh, man, it's so <laughs> gross. If you look at the guy's face, it's obviously a mask, but yeah. even knowing to look for it, I have still never once looked at his face. Neither because... am I. I'm a little bit distracted by the stumps where his arms used to be. <laughs> exactly. Oh, my God. It's yeah. it's so intense. And it's gushing blood, and this all of a sudden legs start shooting out of it, and the head shoots up on, like, a flesh cylinder and it's just awful. <laughs> yeah, it really awful. is. <laughs> and and it's everyone like some sort is, of horrific yeah. caterpillar. Yes. Oh yeah. man, that's a perfect way to describe it. I was I was trying to come up with something and literally couldn't, which yeah. is why I said flesh cylinder. <laughs> <laughs> and so McCready he incinerates it, but the head then detaches and turns into a remote controlled spider head. Where yeah. like the this is one of my t-shirts. I call it. I call it Spider Norris. You know, the <laughs> eyes, his eyes come out. The head lands upside down, so it's not even right side up. Right. It's upside down, and legs, spider legs come out of each side of it, and then the eyes pop out on stalks and raise above the body. Truly disgusting. Yeah. Oh, and, and when his neck is skittering away, when the neck is separating and the head's falling off, it Ugh. they have this stretchy tube work inside the neck where everything looks green, and then this big bubble of green pus like expands and bursts it's the it's so disgusting i can't it really is (laughs) it's just such a nice touch yeah god like i i just watched it and you're bringing me right back to it (laughs) (laughs) i feel bad for the little spider guy he almost makes it he he almost makes it (laughs) he stops Um, in doorway to look back for some reason yeah you gotta you gotta respect the hustle that he does show <laughs> yeah. He almost gets um, away and then oh who is it? One of them sees him and is like, What? Palmer sees someone else notice it and and calls attention to it, which is interesting because as we'll find out later, Palmer is in fact 
part of the thing. So really kind of lends more credence to this hypothesis that McCready then perpetuates because of this, that every part of the thing is an individual life form with its own survival instinct. He says this because of the head detaching Mm -hmm. and running away. That kind of understanding going back to it and, and knowing that Palmer is part of the thing really lends to that without even it needing to be part of the story at the beginning. Yeah. So it's, it's another just nice touch that it all really works together. It sets up the the blood scene, especially sets up the fact that the blood itself is a living organism. Is, yeah. There's blood all over this base. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, oh, it's, man. it seems like they never had any chance at all if right. it can get down that small, that granular and still be a threat. Yeah, def- I honestly hadn't even considered that. So it's a good thing that they wind up taking care of it the way that they do, because yeah. Yeah. Uh, otherwise they would have been screwed no matter what. It just seems like burning it is not definitely not enough. <laughs> yeah, know? yeah. who knows? But everyone is at each other's throats now at this point. Any little modicum of trust that was still left over is now gone. Clark actually lunges at McCready with a scalpel, but uh, he gets shot in self-defense. McCready shoots him right in the head right in the it's, dome, yeah. yeah it's it's really intense in that it's like a very human act of violence which kind of like shocks you out of all the yeah it does after all stuff. this yeah after all this weird body horror alien gore to, to, mm-hmm. to have just a guy get shot in the head again it, yeah it kind of brings you back down to earth in a way that i think is positive that lets you kind of work your way back up again So it de-escalates in a positive way. And this leads to the much imitated, never duplicated blood test scene. Just the the building of tension in this scene is superbly handled. It's incredible. And just a couple of places off the top of my head can think of that imitated, had an homage to, blatantly ripped off, call it what you will. (laughs) Deep Space Nine has an imitation of this in one of its episodes. South Park has done it. Wreck 2. And we talk about it on this very show, The Faculty. It's definitely an homage in that movie where it's it's supposed to be reminiscent of it, Mm -hmm. but... The alien drug test that they take when they're hiding in that movie is almost a pure recreation of this scene. And it works there, but there's nothing like the original. You know, it's so good in this. Yeah. Like you said, the tension builds incredibly. It's the editing, the way they handle the cuts, just the the close-ups, and just everything adds to making this scene better and better and better. Yeah, I specifically want to point out Kurt Russell's performance in this scene is really spectacular as well. When there's like a moment where it looks like he starts to doubt it as well. Oh, yeah. Because they're like three people in and no one has had any weird reaction. Yeah, and so you can tell it gets to him when Clark tests as human. Mm-hmm. And yeah. they point out, you killed a human. Right. Yeah. He's like, was it for nothing? Yeah. It's intense. And you're also like, is this hypothesis bullshit? Like, he said (laughs) it with such confidence, but like, how the hell does he know? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But finally, it does work on Palmer's blood. And so Palmer transforms. The scare when he puts the needle in the blood gets me every time. Oh, yeah. Even when I know it's coming, (laughs) they have a way of, I don't know what it is. The beat throws you off where Hmm. you just don't. He's in the middle of talking when he does it. That's part of it. And uh, yeah, it's yeah. just, it makes a scream and it's just a, it's a nice little shock in there. Definitely. And it's, it's another great use of that alien otherworldly sound design that you had mentioned before, where it really adds a lot to it. Um, yep. Unnerving sound. And then Palmer starts going. 
Yeah, Palmer starts going. He transforms into this, like, weird, melting eye, long-necked, bubbling face monster. It's mm-hmm. grotesque. Yeah, uh, poor... This is where Windows gets it, right? He's the one yeah, that gets his he, head... Oh, poor guy. It's bad. The monster's head split open. It bends over and bites Windows' head. So his entire head's in this monster's mouth and his neck is in its teeth. And then it lifts him up off the ground and starts flailing his body around the room. (laughs) (laughs) While Windows is is screaming and the monster is making its horrible noises and everyone else is panicking, you know, because some of them are still tied to a couch. Right. (laughs) Yeah. It's it's crazy. And you feel so bad for Windows. But, like, you're also really scared because the Palmer change starts happening kind of out of nowhere like yeah and McCready's flamethrower is uh malfunctioning so he can't burn it right and so he actually has to kind of destroy one with dynamite and yep. a flare um <laughs> and it, it had like gotten out into the winter into the winter wilderness and he destroys that with dynamite and it blows up like a helicopter and it's funny because in the commentary he was talking about how the explosion was way bigger than he expected it to be <laughs> And so if you look at him, he's, like, reacting for real. Like, holy shit. And he, he talks about how it's just pure luck that he didn't get hit with something because he felt stuff just go, like, around his head. So be careful out there, filmmakers. <laughs> dynamite is not a toy. <laughs> no, it's not. But uh, so he, he kills one with the dynamite, and he kills – he finally gets the flamethrower working again, and he kills – one with the flamethrower. Yeah, there's something we... sad. It's Windows, and he's transforming, but he's, like, slumped over in the corner. He still looks very human. Yeah. And he's just burning it, and it's flailing around and kicking its legs a little, and you just feel really bad for Windows. Yeah, Windows has really... Uh, he's gotten a short end of the stick here, yeah. for sure. Yeah, definitely. But then we do get a great line from Donald Moffat as Gary, who says... I know you fellows have been through a lot, but I'd rather not spend the rest of this winter tied to the fucking, fucking couch. couch. <laughs> yeah. um, I love great. that reading. It's really awesome. Yeah, uh, it's it. very it's funny. a perfect button to the scene. They feel appropriately ashamed of themselves. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like they look bashful. It's very funny. I also, I have to note that this is kind of the spot where my notes kind of take a nosedive because yeah, I, really I just get so wrapped up in watching it all come to a head <laughs> that yeah. like this movie is so good that even watching it specifically to take notes you can't help but just get invested in the movie instead yeah towards the end i stopped taking notes too the only one that i have left is explosions look great fuck cgi (laughs) (laughs) i mean that's a pretty serious note too but uh, (laughs) yeah but so the remaining crew leaves childs to guard the outpost Mm -hmm. and they go to administer administer this test to blair now that they know that it works And they find out that he has escaped via tunnel and they follow the path and discover that not only has Blair been assimilated, but he's been constructing a little spaceship using just the tools. He's machining parts down in this ice cavern that he built, which they didn't hear him build. This is the part that I don't really understand. Mm -hmm. I mean, I assume he so he must transform into some other kind of beast to dig this tunnel. I guess that's a lot of excavating to do. In a base that's not that big, and no. they don't hear a thing. And he's also somehow perfectly machines and shapes all these metal parts to build a little spaceship. Hey, you know what? <laughs> that's uh, that's what we call good old American hard work. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Ingenuity. Yeah, that's right. And so they, they're like, oh, all right, we're screwed if Blair gets back to mainland in this spaceship. So yeah. we need to 
like make sure that we take care of this thing. They start to head back and they see Childs running off and abandoning his post. And then the power generator goes down and the the lights go out and they're like, oh man, we're screwed here. We are fucked. <laughs> yeah. um, they realize that the thing at this point is just trying to freeze again and use when a rescue team comes that it'll use that to escape. So it's knocked out the power to knock out the heat. The temperature is dropping all over the base. These guys do not have long to to live, basically. I yeah. Mean, yeah, yeah. They don't not, have their options are limited. Yeah, they go um, to find the generator, I believe, to try and get it started again. Right, and they they that's when they find out it's completely destroyed. So they're th- <laughs> it's they're, not just destroyed. Have, he says it's it, the generator is gone, Macready. Yeah. As well, <laughs> is there anything you can do? And he says no, it's gone. <laughs> it's like the entire generator was pulled underneath just, the ice. Yeah. Just lifted, just lifted and walked away with. (laughs) And so they they realize that they have really no choice but to destroy the facility uh, using explosives, and they're just going to sacrifice themselves to try and kill it. This is basically their only option left. And this is the part I was talking about that's sort of mirrored in the beginning with him dumping the whiskey into the computer to destroy it instead of losing. Right, absolutely. Um, It definitely has that same sort of feel, and, and... it's just great character work, um, establishing him right away. Really important to make sure that this kind of – it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere for him to be like, all right, well, we're just going to say fuck it. Like, Yeah, they're in a desperate spot. There is nothing else that they can think of doing. And they're right. basically going down fighting. And like I said in my last note, these explosions look great. The oh, yeah. buildings blowing up, the sides blowing out. I mean they're clearly very real, very large explosions, mm-hmm. and there's just no – substitute for that definitely something but, i very much miss about the 80s action movies and, and horror movies is uh, explosions and car crashes that look very very real yeah it definitely lends a gravity to all those movies that have them mm-hmm. and it really works here yeah agreed. um we do get another really supremely fucked up scene that this one maybe unsettles me more than any other because set the hand in the face. Yes, I don't. <laughs> yeah. I can't. I don't know why because it's not. It's not like the most grotesque thing that happens, mm-hmm. but. Blair attacks him and just like shoves his fingers into his face underneath I, the skin of his face. You can yes. see his fingers still inside his face working. Yes, it's it not. It doesn't like create gross. blood. Like it's not like he no. forces it into his head. It He's like essentially melts. absorbing him, killing him. Yeah. It's it's nasty. It's yeah. really nasty. And Nalls hears this suspicious noise, and unfortunately, we just never see Nalls again. Yeah, he just disappears. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, you he just follows assume the thing got him. I, I don't know what else could have... I mean, look, if Nulls yeah. somehow managed to get away, you know what? Good for him. Good for you, <laughs> yeah. I As far as I'm concerned, I haven't heard anything to the contrary. So yeah, let's just say he got away. All right, so Nulls is the fine. only winner here. <laughs> yeah. um, and so it's basically just McCready left, and Blair transforms into this huge monster. Gigantic. To, it's insanely huge. And, yeah, and it's combining all the parts of the things that it's absorbed and exactly. all this new stuff. It opens and a dog's head comes out. And, yep. and But they just use the whole buffalo on this thing. Oh. <laughs> That's right. No <laughs> wasted parts. Um, yeah. It took 50 people to operate this puppet, they said. Wow. And you understand why. Because this thing is swinging around and it's destroying stuff. And it's got this huge weight to its arms that... Uh, you can tell that it must have been hugely heavy, yeah. um, but it looks so good. I think when they introduce it, they use a little stop motion with the tentacles and stuff. And uh, and so it's just McCready, 
and he uh, uh, attacks. He again decides to just charge ahead. He attacks it with the dynamite, which sets off the other charges, destroying the Blair monster and the facility. Again, this looks fantastic. Just these huge explosions. Yeah, these are the real good ones. Can't beat it. No. Somehow McCready managed to get away from this, uh, this explosion, and he sits down nearby the smoldering facility, and he's joined by Childs, who says yeah. that he thought he saw Blair and chase after him, then got lost in the storm. And yeah. so this is the end of the movie, but it is hugely controversial. At the at the end, it, they don't they understand that it doesn't really matter if one of them is the thing, and McCready passes him a bottle of scotch, cut to black. Now. There's a lot of debate around this about if one, both, or neither of them are assimilated. Before I start talking about exactly the the arguments, do you have a feeling one way or the other? I don't think that either one of them are the thing. Mm. But I've read different theories about uh, what it could be, what it cannot be. I personally, just because it's left open-ended, I like mm. the idea of it just being McCready and Childs, and they're just sharing a bottle of whiskey. Yeah, yeah, I watching, think it works watching better. Watching face burn. Right, it works better as like a story. I think if it's neither of them and they're just paranoid, still like eyeballing each other, but knowing that it doesn't really matter. Yeah, um, it really at this point does not matter. I mean, there's nothing. They're both going to freeze to death. They're anyway. both going to die. It yeah. doesn't matter whether they. I mean, I wouldn't want to get eaten by this fucking thing. That's for sure. <laughs> but I mean, either way, they're going to die. And I, I don't know. I mean, it seems likely that Childs was absorbed, and this is this is the thing, and mm-hmm. McCready. But, you know, they don't show it. So, right. so I, I just choose to believe it's they're both still human and enjoying right. a human moment at the end. You know what? I, I tend to agree with you, to be honest. People who think that Keith David as Childs is the thing, um, they say that you can't see him breathing. I think uh, you this, can. Yeah, I look you, closely. I think, you can, I think well. you can see some some smoke coming out of his mouth. He is in shadows a lot. So it's hard to tell. But I believe you can see him breathing. There's also a theory that McCready the the scotch is not scotch it's gasoline right and that he you know took a sip and pretended like it was scotch and gave it to him and now he knows that child's is the thing because he drank it like it was scotch right i, I guess because he, he right. would he wouldn't he wouldn't know the taste but he would know like this is what you do with it so th- yeah, yeah so that's yeah. another theory i also agree that you can see keith david breathing mm-hmm. uh, especially on the approach as he's actually like walking up to it when yeah. he has more light behind him, I think that it's easier to see that. This is also kind of invalidated by the prequel, which establishes that the thing can't replicate inorganic matter, and Childs does have his earring in. Oh, I didn't notice that. But another thing that means that maybe he is a thing and just had time to put the earring in is that when Palmer hands Child a cigarette while they're watching a quiz show, mm-hmm. and it's it's possible because like the timeline is a little loose but you, like you're not quite sure exactly when palmer turns right. so it's possible that palmer is already assimilated now has things saliva all over this cigarette it's a big oh, fat it, joint is it? Oh, <laughs> i think so i didn't notice i might I'm be thinking of a different scene but i seem to remember him <laughs> like firing up a huge spliff and then saying i've already seen this one and ejecting the vhs tape of the game show they're watching oh you know what i think you're right and uh <laughs> i was just too innocent for it oh. and, uh, <laughs> i didn't <laughs> naive realize. little georgie <laughs> yep uh okay so he passes him the joint and well yeah, you know things alive all over it yes and weed kills kids so yeah. it turns you into the thing <laughs> just saying that um, so that if if that is in fact the case, then he would have had time to like 
put the earring back in and everything. Yeah, I don't know so, if it would pay attention to that level of detail, but maybe it would. Right, and and like you said, I think that it's the best ending for the movie if they're both human and just still paranoid. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I also want to mention that the poster for this movie is almost as iconic as the movie itself. Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Man is the warmest place to hide. Yeah, it's a great tagline. That hanging in my bathroom. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Watch out in, in James's bathroom, everyone. <laughs> <Yeah>. um, <laughs> and so there's this like glowing face poster, and it was shown to John Carpenter after he was already getting awful previews, and he thought that this poster was going to be the final nail in the coffin. <laughs> and he oh, was right. so upset by this poster. It was presented as kind of a take it or leave it option, and uh -huh. he had worked so hard to get away from the like man in a suit horror trope, and yeah. then. That's literally what's on the poster. <laughs> yeah. John Carpenter said that he thought it looked like a slasher movie and commented that they should have just painted a bloody knife in his hand. <laughs> now it's considered an all-time great. I think it's great. So sorry. I, I think John, he was just. I think he was just hurting from the reviews. I mean, they were yes. pretty brutal. This movie. They are. Uh, so he he he's mentioned that he takes all of his failed movies pretty hard. But this one don't uh, disappointed him in particular yeah. because he loved it like working on it he thought it was going to be great mm -hmm. and he has mentioned later on that he thinks that this is his best movie and one of his favorites he lost the job of directing firestarter the poor performance of this movie yeah it, it's, it had immediate effects yeah. and i mean it's crazy to think that this is such an uh, like a well-renowned movie now but the original film's director publicly denounced this version, saying, yeah. if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. Um, yeah. Other insults included instant junk, wretched excess, bereft, despairing, and nihilistic. I have that lacking one written down. Like, it's crazy. Yeah. All Sloppy continuity, lacked pacing, devoid of warmth or humanity. That's the idea. <laughs> Sacrificed everything at the altar of gore. Dialogue is banal and interchangeable, making the characters seem and sound like, well, I mean, some of them. <laughs> and, yeah. Yeah. Only entertaining if the viewer needed to see spider-legged heads and dog autopsies. Well, which, I do. Frankly, I do. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> eat shit, Vincent Canby of the New York Times. <laughs> uh, did we mention that Ennio Maricone did the music for this film? No. We didn't, and he does a really awesome job with it. Incredible. Um, He's known for the uh, Dollars trilogy, the Clint Eastwood mm -hmm. uh, work. He's done a lot of the Italian, how do you pronounce that? Gallo films? Uh, giallo. Giallo films. He, he did a bunch of work in those. He's just, he's a great, he's a great artist, and the soundtrack to this movie is incredible. It I really have it, is. I have it on vinyl, and uh, I listen to it. It's great. That's, that's, a, that's a nice pickup, honestly. Hmm. Um, it's one of those... It's one of the soundtracks where sometimes with horror movies, it can feel very tacked on, like mm -hmm. at the end. But this score definitely feels like it's part of the movie. You could yeah. not have one without the other because they're just so intertwined. So being able to listen to it, you would never have the same feelings that you have listening to it if it wasn't an amazing, paranoid, uh, bleak movie. But without the score kind of emphasizing those aspects of it, I don't think it would have been nearly as good as it is. It adds a lot of tension to the movie, and it's it's just dope. I don't yeah, know what else to say. It's sure. just great. I do want to ask, what do you think about when critics get something wrong like this? When you review a movie poorly, like just in your own head or anything, do you sometimes think about, like, could a movie just be ahead of its time? Like, 
it's it's hard to put yourself in the shoes of someone who's watching this and feeling like it's not good. But I mean, horror is not the most well-respected genre among movie critics. I think that's mm-hmm. changed a lot. The advent of internet journalism and you know sites that are specific to horror movies or more focused on pop culture and the value of it. But I mean, it's just shocking to me that so many people hated this movie when they saw it. I don't understand it. It was up against stiff competition when it released in the theater. I think E.T. was out, uh, Poltergeist. Yeah, uh, E.T. had come out two weeks prior. Yeah, Poltergeist um, came out four weeks before this, but it was still doing well in the box office. So definitely a different kind of tone uh, for yeah. extraterrestrials. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't even know that it was ahead of its time. I mean, I think the effects work was. I mean, it's just so mm-hmm. I don't know how you could see what was happening there and not respect the creativity of it. Right. But yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think sometimes the critics just get it wrong. And I think yeah. sometimes it's, you know, a snowball where it just everyone has to be the, the next harshest. Yeah, exactly. Um, where it just sort of builds and builds and builds. And uh, right. you know, I don't know. I'm glad that it that it got the respect it deserved. Yeah, and that definitely. Carpenter was around to see that turn and and people love it. You know, this is a very beloved movie in the horror community. Definitely. We've kind of gone through all of the like shocking, amazing moments in this movie. But I got to know, James, why is this the best horror movie of all time? For me, this is the best horror movie ever made because I watch this movie every single year. I don't do this with any other movie. But right around the first snowfall, I live in Vermont and we get a lot of snow here. Right around the first snowfall, which luckily for me happened just this week, I'll throw this on and me and my wife will watch it. I always get something out of it. It's endlessly entertaining to me. The setting, you know, the remote isolation, the paranoia, the special effect work, the acting, you know, especially Wilford Brimley and McCready. I mean, it's just it's got everything that I need in one little package and uh, it delivers everything on a level that is just plain higher than other movies. You know, I can't disagree. Uh, To me, this is the best horror movie of all time because Like I mentioned earlier, this is one of the few movies that genuinely scares me when I watch it. I I think that the special effects work is unparalleled. Like it's it's truly remarkable how good this is and how effectively that they unsettle you. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't scare me anymore because of how many times I watched it. But definitely the first couple times I watched it, it scared the hell out of me. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's for me, it's still there. I, I'm, yeah. It's the just like the peeling back of the dog skin on the skull, yeah. um, the the fingers thing. It, it's there's enough in there that still just kind of shakes me at my core, where it's the body horror of it and yeah. uh, and that paranoia and everything that's pressing down on you the entire time makes it feel very claustrophobic. That's true. Um, it's it's just it's a great movie. I think that even just those things might be enough to push it over. But then you have the great direction um, by John Carpenter. You have score. Kurt Russell, who's doing an amazing job uh, carrying this movie as the lead. The score is great. The cinematography is great. I, I think that it really is everything coming together in a way that is Im- almost impossible to find. And I don't think that it could have been made at another time as we see with the prequel. The time was right for the practical effects to be the focus and the thing that really kind of makes this movie stick out. Yeah. And to me, that's why it's the best horror movie ever made. Yeah, I mean, for for me to call it the best horror movie made, it's can you think of anything in this movie that you could do better? 
No, I mean... <laughs> Neither can I. That's why I put it at the top. It's not the scariest horror movie to me. I have other horror movies that I find scarier, but I I cannot think of a way to improve it, and that's right. why I call it the best. And you know what? That's a good enough reason for me, James. I want to thank you for coming on the show. Hey, I was really me. excited to talk about this movie. I was just waiting for someone to pick it, so I was glad I that mean, you got it. Yeah, I was excited um, to finally spill all my useless knowledge about it to someone. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure that our audience will be very grateful. Do you have anything that you want to plug? No, I got nothing to plug. Uh, just shout out something that you like then. Lake Mungo. All right. Everybody everyone... should watch Lake Mungo. Yeah, go watch Lake Mungo. It's a very cool paranormal movie that I uh, am meaning to check out myself. Oregon's yeah, definitely you got to check it out. It. So I will take that plug myself. <laughs> <laughs> as far as me, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef. And you can find the show's Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. We're also on Letterboxd. You can follow along on there. It's George Hef on there. Tell us what you think about this movie. Do you agree that it's the best horror movie ever made? Tell us especially if you can understand why critics maybe reacted the way that they do. Is there something that you don't like about this movie? I want to hear from you in particular. Do you think that maybe the shock and the, and the body horror is too much? I would love to hear from someone who maybe doesn't react to it the same way. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And that's all. Bye. Bye.